Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and co-host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? Um, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director with the Americas Program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. Last month, Ecuador was rocked by a grueling set of attacks carried out by members of criminal gangs, the latest in a series of incidents that have underscored the country's spiral into violence and insecurity. Over the course of two days of violence, inmates rioted and took over prisons, police officers were murdered, gangs detonated car bombs across the country, and armed gunmen even stormed a live television broadcast in the violence-wracked city of Guayaquil. Then, a few days later, the prosecutor investigating the attack on the TV station was gunned down in cold blood. In response, newly elected President Daniel Novoa has mobilized the armed forces and declared a state of internal armed conflict, along with designated some 22 criminal groups as terrorist organizations. While the scale of the violence appears to have forged a moment of unity in Ecuador's otherwise polarized political environment, Many are already asking what the end game looks like. In particular, the specter of President Nayib Bukele's eternal state of exception and mass incarcerations in El Salvador looms large. To help us unpack the security situation on the ground in Ecuador and what to expect in the coming months, we are very pleased to have back on the podcast Sebastián Hurtado, president and founder of the Quito-based political risk consultancy Profitas. Together, we will discuss the rise of violent crime in Ecuador, the contours of Noboa's Plan Phoenix security strategy, and the role of the United States in providing security assistance to Ecuador. Thank you for joining us today, Sebastián. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's great to have you back on the show. One of the most shocking aspects of the violence that has gripped Ecuador in recent years is how quickly and how far the country appears to have descended from its previous status as a zone of peace in the region. Between 2021 and 2022, for instance, the murder rate in the country doubled. Sebastián, in your opinion, what has changed? What have been the primary drivers of the spike in violence we've observed in recent years? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Chris, uh, that's the saddest part of it. You know, we've lost so much so fast. I mean, going from low rate, uh, relatively low rate of just fewer than 10 deaths per 100,000 people in 2020, to over 45 deaths, over 100,000 people in 2023. So in just three years, it's been an unprecedented spike in uh, crime and murder in Ecuador. We have uh, two trends in the last 10 years, you know, a major expansion of the drug trade in Ecuador, driven basically by market reasons, by an expansion of cocaine production, especially in Colombia, which has doubled in the last 10 years, and a major expansion of cocaine demand in Europe and Asia. And you know, Ecuador being right there next to Colombia was the perfect place to start reaching out the Pacific Ocean and shipping drugs to the United States and to Europe and to Asia. What facilitated the expansion of the industry in Ecuador was the fact that the previous administrations had a lax policy against the drug trafficking. 
And the fact that Ecuador had a dollarized economy, which helped facilitate dollar-based transactions or illegal transactions. Ecuador also has weak institutions that uh, could be co-opted by the criminal organizations. There was a major demobilization of rebel groups in 2016 in Colombia. These rebel groups had a control of the southern border of Colombia and the control of the cocaine trade. When they were dismantled, these new criminal organizations came out to take over and started exploring the south way to move drugs through Ecuador. And that's basically the market-driven increase in the drug trade in Ecuador. But the crime, which is most recent, I mean, the escalating crime wave, which is more recent and started basically since 2020, as I mentioned before, has mostly to do with the fact that the new Lasso government started to crack down on this drug trade in Ecuador. And also due to the fact that there was a major involvement of newly created local gangs that were acting with Colombian and Mexican criminal organizations, and they were operating in the local market. At the end of 2020, there were a few killing of major leaders of these organizations. We put these groups in disarray, and all these different factions of these groups started fighting for the business in Ecuador within the prison system and outside the prison system in Ecuador. That's basically where the recent violence comes from. So first, it was a development of a major development of the cocaine trade through Ecuador for the reasons that I mentioned. And then this conflict between different criminal groups fighting each other for control of the market in Ecuador. I would say those were the basic drivers of the situation we've been living through in Ecuador in the past 10 years. And I'll also mention that some of the reporting that CSIS has done on the cocaine trade, and as you've noted, the increasing demand in Europe and the decentralization of the trade after the peace agreements in Colombia, we noticed in the Putumayo region a dramatic increase in deforestation and planting of new coca fields right next to the border with Ecuador. President Noboa has dubbed his security strategy Plan Phoenix, but aside from the colorful name, few concrete details seem to be present in the public discourse. In particular, it seems to still be an open question as to how Ecuador will address instability in its prisons and criminal infiltration of the security forces. Let's begin by discussing the origins of this operation. While the violence of early January, January 8th and 9th was deeply disturbing, Ecuador has seen a spate of dramatic displays of criminal violence, most notably last summer when presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio was assassinated on the campaign trail. What triggered this latest eruption of violence in early January? And why was there such a dramatic response? Well, the most recent events this year are directly connected to the new government of President Novoa renewed push back against the criminal organizations and especially their control of local prisons. Local prisons in Ecuador for a number of years have basically operated as de facto headquarters for criminal organizations. And many of the criminal organizations leaders 
that were detained in those prisons were basically the owners of those prisons and they were conducting business there. And sometimes they even felt safer inside the prison than outside of the prison. So control of the prisons was the key first step in order to rein on the criminal organizations. And President Novoa started several moves at the end of December and this year in order to act on the prison system. This new crackdown, this prison system, basically generated the reaction from these groups. It started with Fito, a major local gang leader escaping an Ecuadorian prison in front of the authorities. You know, he was probably the highest profile criminal in the hands of the government, and he just left his prison, and he's still to be found. So this escape from Fito made the government look very bad. And that's when the government started to implement this new state of emergency, and then he launched this war on criminal gangs after a significant number of episodes of violence by these criminal organizations that were somehow unprecedented. It involved bombings, it involved killing of policemen, and most notably, it involved this invasion of this live broadcast in national television. And that specific event triggered the government to call for this all-out war, I would say, on specific criminal organizations. Basically, that's the violence that we got to see at the beginning of this month, was the reaction of these criminal gangs to this new initiative of the government to reign on the prison system. So aside from the prisons, where, where else should we expect public safety to be focused on? You mentioned these criminal gangs that are operating out of the prisons. Presumably, they operate outside of the prisons as well. Are there particular parts of the country that are more affected, where their activity is greater? Sure. Most of the violence in the last few years has been concentrated in the provinces that are close to the Pacific Ocean in Ecuador, because those are the main routes for the drug trade. And those are the places where most local criminal organizations are based. And you know, the difference this with the violence that we experienced this month from what we've been experienced in, in previous months, which has been mostly focused on specific areas of the country, is that the event this month took place in the middle of major cities and even in the capital, Quito, which was not used to see this kind of violence before. This was a very scary situation for most Ecuadorians. And that's what prompted President Novoa to call this new initiative of mobilizing the security forces and basically making these criminal organizations military targets. We are not only seeing the military acting on the prisons, but they're, of course, acting in the hottest areas of the country where most criminal organizations operate, and that's mostly in the Ecuadorian coast. But you know, other parts of the, of, of the country has also seen uh, actions from the military in coordination with political forces. They've been cracking down on criminals, and they've been making significant arrests, 
And according to figures from the government, we've gone from a high number of 28 murders per day at the beginning of the year to a low of 9.2 murders per day at this point this month. So at least the decrease in violence has been significant. So aside from that decrease in the amount of homicides per day that you just mentioned, it's early days and probably too soon to judge the success or the failure of the overall security the plan of the new government. But uh, apart from this daily reduction, what other effects have you seen in the state of emergency that was declared? Yeah, the first one is the decrease in homicides. I mean, we still, as you said, mentioned, we still have to wait for a longer period to see if this is sustainable. We can clearly see a better control of the prisons right now, which they seem to be mostly in the hands of the military and the police right now. I mean, they have raided most prisons. They have seized different assets, luxuries, guns, drugs that these criminal organizations maintain the prison. So there seems to be a better control of the prison system, which was key. The other effect is that, in general, I think people feel uh, safer now. As I mentioned, I think Aquarians got really scared at the beginning of the month with the events we got to see even through live TV. People feel that the situation or the security situation has improved around the country, less so in these specific areas which are more problematic and they have been more problematic and it's it is where the government is focusing its actions. And, uh, and the other effect that we've seen is a major spike in support for the president, for President Obama. I mean, public support for him has skyrocketed. And now he's polling in uh, 80% support in some polls, which is also unprecedented. The effect of that situation, of this public support to the President Obama, is the fact that he has been able to move forward not only with these security initiatives, which are some of them unprecedented, but also he has been able to push forward with some other reforms, even in the economic side of the story, which many people didn't expect he will be able to in this initial political scenario if it wasn't for the fact that the security situation has provided him with a significant political leverage to advance his political and economic agenda. So he's been able to use this, uh, this national unity around the security crisis to pass other items on his political agenda, despite not having a majority support in Congress. How likely is that to last moving forward? Well, I think he has a window of opportunity right now. The support for the government, I think, is likely, is mainly dependent on his performance on the security situation in Ecuador. If he delivers results that go beyond what we have been able to see now and they're sustained over a number of months, I think President Novoa will have enough public support in the street and enough political support in the National Assembly to keep pushing for 
reforms. He has already presented a number of not only institutional, but also economic reforms to Congress. I think they're likely to pass in some form in the following weeks. But he's also moving forward with a referendum that is he's expecting for it to take place in April this year with a number of questions around security, most of them, and institutional reform, but also with a, a couple of interesting economic questions that could be very welcomed by investors and the business community in Ecuador. The situation remains like that. I expect for President Novoa to pass some of his reforms to win the referendum, to remain popular, and eventually be well-placed to eventually get re-elected next year, which is a possibility at this point. However, you know, things in Congress might become a little more complicated towards the second part of this year, because, you know, most political parties represented in Congress are interested in making a bid for the presidency in the national elections we are having next year. And I think they're going to start positioning themselves either in a position of just not helping the government in order to boost their political opportunities going forward. So that's how I see the political scenario this year. Boa's predecessor, President Lasso, he called openly for a partnership with the United States on Plan Ecuador, a supposed Plan Ecuador, modeled, of course, on a similarly named Plan Colombia. Novoa seems to be disposed to continue with this partnership. And recently, on January 23rd, the White House announced more than a million in new security assistance to Ecuador. What areas should future U.S.-Ecuador security cooperation focus on? I think there are a few key ones. One is control of the Ecuadorian coasts or help in controlling the Ecuadorian coasts. You know, according to some reports, almost 60% of the cocaine trade going into Europe and Asia gets exported through Ecuadorian ports and through the Ecuadorian coast. So help from the U.S. to Ecuadorian forces to control the Pacific coast and the Ecuadorian coast will be very important. That's sort of what the U.S. used to do when Ecuador and the U.S. had this agreement about the utilization of a military base in Manta in the Ecuadorian coast almost 10 years back. There was a coordinated war between U.S. and Ecuadorian forces to control the Pacific Ocean and the drug trade. That stopped over 10 years ago, and it could start again, not necessarily with a new military base in Manta, but with a close collaboration between U.S. and Ecuadorian forces to control ports and the Ecuadorian coast. The other thing is, you know, intelligence and training. I think the U.S., the, one of the key problems the Ecuador faces in its fight against this international criminal organization is that I think Ecuadorian institutions and Ecuadorian security forces are not prepared to deal with such challenge because they don't have the experience, they don't have the training, they don't have the resources. So getting support from the U.S. in terms of intelligence, in terms of training, in terms of institution building will be very important. 
and also a cooperation that is not only military or with the police. The U.S. is also working with the attorney general in Ecuador to improve the way the attorney general chases down dirty money, money laundry, and other aspects of the drug trade that are relevant to this fight against the criminal organizations. Money will be important. That hasn't been the case yet. Ecuador is now getting significant financial support from the U.S., but for sure, if the U.S., I think it will be very important for the U.S. to support, for example, a potential IMF agreement, a new IMF agreement with the Ecuadorian government and the support of multilateral organizations to finance the considerable demands of financing that this war and in general the Ecuadorian government will require this year. Sebastián, outside observers have called attention to the fact that Ecuador appears to be trying to emulate the so-called Plan Bukele, which is El Salvador's brutal crackdown on gangs that successfully curbed violent crime in the country, but at significant cost in terms of human rights violations. In particular, there is significant concern about what a security crackdown might mean for Ecuadorian democracy. Do you think Noboa is trying to replicate the Bukele model? And if he is, how likely is it to succeed in Ecuador, especially given the differences in organized crime, the, the modalities of organized crime between the two countries? Well, President Noboa has specifically said that the Bukele model will not work in Ecuador. And I think he might be right. I see two key differences between the criminal organizations in El Salvador and those in Ecuador. Most criminal organizations in El Salvador were basically local gangs, you know, involved also in drug trafficking, but also in extortion, in robberies, in crimes against property. But they were mostly local urban gangs operating in, in El Salvador. And I think the criminal organizations in Ecuador are of a different scale. Just because on one hand, the drug trade in Ecuador, as I mentioned before, is much more significant. It's a huge industry right now as compared to what you could have in, in El Salvador. And on the other hand, you know, these are larger, more organized, internationally connected criminal organizations, which have vast more resources than other organizations probably in Central America. They make far more complex war targets. Those differences are important. The second difference in Ecuador is the fact that we still have a significant degree of institutional independence in Ecuador with a very powerful constitutional court that for sure, I think, will step in if the crackdown on crime in Ecuador goes beyond what could be accepted under the terms of our constitution. So I think those constraints or those different circumstances make the situation different in Ecuador from what you have in El Salvador. I think those factors and constraints will drive 
the campaign against uh, criminal organizations in Ecuador. And that's why I think it will be a, a different scenario than what we had in, in El Salvador. Sebastian, is there something that we didn't cover? Anything else that you'd like to highlight or add? I think we are seriously facing the risk of becoming a narc state or a failed state if we cannot control the drug trade and especially the crime connected with the drug trade during this year. And I really hope that our political leaders are up for the task in terms of finding common ground on preventing from this situation to escalating even further and just commit to making the reforms and supporting the actions of the government in terms of dealing with the current situation. And let's hope that the international community, which are themselves large consumers of the drugs coming out of Ecuador, also realizes the critical situation that Ecuador is in and steps up to the plate and provides support for Naboa's effort to combat this scourge. I will mention that too, if, if I may. I think the international community will have a significant role right now in terms of making sure that this effort from the government is not only based on just cracking down on crime and just using brute force to improve the situation, that there's a coordinated strategy behind that that deals with other parts of the drug business that is not necessarily connected with the security situation or the crime situation. Also, I think the, the international community has a significant role in providing, as I mentioned, some financial support. I think the I really hope that the Ecuadorian government can strike some form of deal with the IMF and the multilateral institutions because the economic situation right now in Ecuador is very dire at the same time that we are having this security crisis. Uh, so financial support will be very important, not only to support the uh, war effort against the criminal organization, but also support the economy, which is facing significant challenges this year. Thanks once again for joining us on 35 West. We really appreciate you speaking with us and joining us on our podcast. Great talking to you again, Chris. And that's it for this week's edition of 35 West. We hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes.